Welcome to another edition of Deep Dive. I'm Amy. I'm Shane. And today we're going to be talking about making yourself the hero of your own story. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we're going to talk about fixing the church, right? A little bit. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) I mean, fix it all. Yeah. Fix it all. Um, And another thing, we have an interview in this episode with the Chris Lovingood, who is the executive director of Nations Ministry Center, a ministry center for refugees here in the Nashville area. Uh, We have an extended interview with him. I think you'll learn a lot. So hang around. Hey, everybody, before we get started, we just wanted to make an announcement. We thank you so much for listening and watching these, uh, but we want to get some feedback from you, questions that you would have us answer here on Deep Dive. We can deep dive into your questions. So feel free to submit those at the email address you see there on the screen. It's also in the show notes, and uh, you can click on it, send us some questions, and in some upcoming episodes, we'll do our best to answer them for you. Awesome. So this week, our scripture comes to us from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. From Paul, called by God's will to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, and from Sosthenes, our brother, to God's church that is in Corinth, to those who have been made holy to God in Christ Jesus, who were called to be God's people, together with all those who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ in every place, he's their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always for you because of God's grace that was given to you in Christ Jesus. That is, you were made rich through him in everything, in all your communication and every kind of knowledge, in the same way that the testimony about Christ was confirmed with you. The result is that you aren't missing any spiritual gift while you wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also confirm your testimony about Christ until the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, and you were called by him to partnership with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So I actually was not at church mm-hmm. on Sunday. So this was the Sunday off kind of post-Advent and Christmas yeah, for yeah. me. Where did you, uh, did you go to Pillow Presbyterian, Bedside Baptist? Where, where did you attend? Pillow Presbyterian, Pillow Presbyterian and then a little bit of brunch. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, I, think, I think brunch can be a sacrament for some people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, but, you know, the really interesting thing, because I really thought brunch would be the highlight for me okay. on, on Sunday morning. Okay. But then I went back and I watched the service, mm-hmm. and that actually was a really interesting experience for me. Oh. Because whether you're preaching or I'm preaching, there is no Sunday that I'm not reading the scripture and listening to oh, podcasts yeah. Yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. planning and yeah. you know really kind of digging yeah, into yeah. the scripture. And this is one time I didn't do any of that. So that's right. That's so right, when yeah. I came and and watched and listened to the sermon, it really truly was with pretty fresh ears oh, because I hadn't spent that time, and it just yeah. felt like a really interesting perspective. And I thought it was beautiful, and oh. that ended up kind of all being my favorite part of not being here uh, was the being able oh, to okay, watch yeah. it with like yeah, very fresh ears. I get, I get that. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, the the funny a little inside baseball here is you know we're we're, we're doing these sermons and we were estimating the other day how long i mean i i I was estimating for myself i probably spend 20 hours is is that what you were thinking absolutely yeah and and what's funny is we do all this work but then whoever's not preaching so on sundays amy's preaching i've i've heard the sermon live right i go back and i'll I'll watch her i'll listen to it again at least once and it's it is interesting that because even yeah you're right even the sundays 
we don't preach. We are pretty immersed in what we're about to hear. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So yeah. to be able to have truly kind of mm-hmm. fresh ears going into it was really interesting. Yeah. 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 So you, so one of the things that I wanted to to bring up from what I heard from you was maybe a little bit in the middle of the sermon. Okay. Actually, it was the part where you talked about the story about Everly. Um, oh, sure, yeah. And kind of them, you know, being the hero or the victim of their story. So Everly's mm-hmm. your daughter, mm-hmm. and yes, you yep. kind of shared the story about the maybe getting a little bit hurt playing around, maybe a little rough with yeah, uh, yeah. with their friends, um, and how we too. Um, can can do that. And we can yeah. get into what I might say would be some narrative loops mm-hmm. of our thinking about we're the heroes of our own stories or we're the victims, victims yeah. of yeah. our own stories. So I was hoping to hear a little bit more about that from you. Yeah, it's uh, we all have a stage in our life where we find ourselves saying things over and over. Mm-hmm. And I feel like this is one I've been saying a lot recently. Um, that that phrase, we all like to make ourselves the heroes of our own story. Mm-hmm. I, I'm struck by one. I think that's true, but I also think that's it's always been true. That phrase that we always tell that way. I just feel that at this point where we are as a society and as a church, it's just a little easier to notice that just because we're we're at a time of cultural turmoil, uh, and and we're also wrestling with. Um, defining like what, what's, what's authority, what's authoritative uh, to, you know, to steal something from a uh, Phyllis tickle and her, the great emergence, it's always a wrestling for authority. And that's what we're wrestling with right now. And what's so interesting is we live in this nexus where on one hand, we have all the tools of science to give us very definitive answers on things. And yet so much of human life, truth is defined by experience and narrative qualities that can't be defined by scientific qualities and the more I understand about our moral foundations, I would reference the works of Jonathan Haidt in this on moral, founda- moral foundations theory, is there's not as much intentionality to our lives as we would think. Mm. And so a lot, of, a lot of what we come up with our reasoning for things in many ways, whether we realize it or not, is self-justification. And so when you start defining truth, particularly when it's something that can only be described in narrative form, which is most things, particularly with human interaction. Um, I think it just imp- it creates this dynamic of we are just not willing to own up to our contribution to something going wrong. And so we're always going to tell the story where we're the hero in it. Now, I, I do think there's people that probably exist on the other side of this. And this is where I think a component of mental health and anxiety and self-doubt come in. Because I think dangerously there could be people on the other side that are always going to describe themselves as not, and I, not the victim, but as the perpetrator, they're always going to be the one that screwed mm-hmm. up. And um, I think we could all get to that place provided the right combination factors can provide the right genetics or, or, or neurochemical makeup. I mean, we're going to get to the, some people are going to be in those points easier than others. So I don't want to, I don't want to gloss over that, but I, I think for a lot of people, we just don't have the ability to own up, to what honestly happened. I, I can't tell you why you acted. Mm-hmm. And, and to be honest, maybe I can't always fully understand my own actions, but I do understand that I can make a choice in the way I tell that story. And um, radical transparency that makes me anything less than a hero mm-hmm. is something I just know is hard and very difficult to do. Because even, even when I want to be radically honest, 
I'm always hedging. I notice in myself that I'm, and I even say this, I'll have moments where I'll be like, here's a, here's a chance to practice what you preach. I, I, I do this self-talk. <laughs> and in the first thing, there's another part of me that's saying, how can I hedge this? How can I hedge this? How can I say, yes, I did this for wrong reasons, but, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I don't know, do you, I mean, do you struggle with this? Do you think of things like this? Or is this like a wild, crazy way of thinking? No, absolutely. And, you know, one of the things about me is I am uh, always thinking through basically everything that mm-hmm. I do before I do it, you mm-hmm. know, to the nth degree. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that's helpful, even in that kind of loop about was that right the right decision for me and was I factoring in the things that I needed to be factoring in to arrive at that decision I mean and it really can just be a a really big loop yeah I I think it's really as as someone who's worked at a church uh, for many many years and been at it you know as a kid and all those sort of things even before I began life as a minister um you have this inside view about how when churches can really go sideways. And I think, sadly, most people I think have had an experience that has been less than great with the church and could be in the form of theological judgmentalism. It could just be a form of really frustrating squabbles or in often many cases, just running headlong into sort of a feeling of bureaucracy and lack of, uh, lack of movement. And one of the things I've observed in those situations is we have a remarkable ability especially in stories like that, to rationalize all sorts of awful behavior in order to say we were doing it for the right reasons or something. And, and sometimes we just, and sometimes maybe in all honesty, we act in good faith and try to do our best and it, it goes all kinds of wrong. But even then when we tell the story later, we still have a hard time admitting that like, I thought I was doing it right, but Mm -hmm. I was wrong. And that's why when you hear someone that can talk like that, it's bizarre. I mean, it's very disarming and it's very interesting to compare to there's been discussions. I think we talked about it before this idea of cancel culture, which is it's basically like, you know, if you've made a mistake in your past and it's a particularly egregious one and there's online <laughs> evidence of this best of luck to you right. because the hounds are coming. And uh, a good friend and I, a pastor in Michigan, were having this conversation this last week that we just, had concerns for the space for grace in that. And I, to maybe this is where that nexus begins. Like maybe it's, maybe it's like us being a little bit honest about the way we tell the stories about ourselves. Um, because, uh, I am, I am not a virtuous warrior. I mean, I, I, I do my best, but I, I make plenty of mistakes and I really should be more honest about the telling of that. So. Well, and I think it's so endearing, right? You said it, the, it's mm-hmm. really disarming for yes. people to yeah. say, you know, I did this and it was not mm-hmm. the right thing. And even maybe here's why or here's what I hope yeah. that I would have done. I think there's something really endearing about mm-hmm. that, too. And what you brought up about the the church, too, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm kind of wondering how you see this kind of line of thinking expanding to the churches. And I'm talking like capital C churches narrative about itself. Um, and, and oh, its man. place in history and its place in society yeah. now. Yeah, that's an interesting, man, that's an interesting question. And it's an interesting question to answer depending on what side of the fence you're on. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a lot of, I, I was talking to someone the other day, I, I have a lot of uh, friends and a lot of interaction with people who grew up in the church, had a toxic experience, left it. And uh, the best way I could say it is they're going through a little something. It's kind of the way I've described mm-hmm. it. And and um, I, literally at a dinner discussion last night with friends, we were talking about a, a, a Christian musician who had been clearly going through something like this and entered into sort of a, 
uh, an angry phase, should I mm-hmm. say? Uh, and I, and I said, he's going through something, he's going to come through it, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And so I think from your, that, that perspective, when you get on that side and you've been scarred, you can look at the church and there's nothing, the mis- right. all you see is the mistakes. Mm-hmm. And particularly when we get in larger cultural debates, especially there's a movement within, you know, atheist communities and, and some of those streams where, they want to view the institution of the church wholly bad. Right. Absolutely. You know, mm-hmm. and then on the flip side of things, you can be in the church and just say, you know, the growth of hospitals, the growth of all sorts of things that we just, we wouldn't be where we were without the church. Um, but that cuts both ways. And I, I, I that's hard. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's really hard. I mean, I, an interesting example of this is something that the Southern Baptist church has been wrestling with, with recent years, because, um, and some of this has been brought upon by politics, but it was already there to begin with, is that uh, historically black congregations in the Southern Baptist Convention have been warring a little bit with the rest of the denomination for the domination to finally just acknowledge the role of race in their church. Um, and it, it is interesting that they've been doing that. I mean, one can argue to what extent. I'm not here to judge on that. I'm just here to notice that they're actually reckoning with that. Um which is very complicated too, just because I, I think of that from a mainline Protestant perspective, and we're just not really that diverse a church, mm-hmm. despite attesting to value and diversity. Um, I, I don't know. That's that's a hard question, Amy. Do you have thoughts on that one? <laughs> I don't. I don't. Yeah. It's your sermon. Yeah. You just help raise the question yeah, for me. I mean, I think of it within the Corinthian context. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's for them to understand that, like, um, you know, they were – it's helpful to understand that they are sort of bragging about their gifts, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. and, and understanding that, you know, well, I'm, I'm really good at proclaiming the faith. Therefore I'm top dog, you know, and, and associating that with their goodness. And I think where I got at this is there was a phrase in a commentary that was basically saying, and I, and I echoed this phrase in the sermon that if we would, if we would hold ourselves up as the hero of the story, but then read our own stories alongside of scripture, it's pretty humbling mm. because what we've experienced for most of us just can't compare. And, and we're not that virtuous mm. by comparison. And um, especially, you know, you read the gospels, read, I mean, read acts. I mean, I think acts is interesting. Um, maybe that's the model for understanding humility and all this. It, it's so complicated. I don't, I don't know. It, maybe it just literally can't start in an instant. It just has to start on an individual level. I, mm-hmm. I just, I don't know how to talk about that big C institutionally. Right. It's yeah. really hard, especially when we're in the middle of it. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like it's hard to have any kind of really large scale kind of mega perspective. Yeah. As, particularly if you're talking about how the church, you know, is doing yeah. right now. Yeah, I, to me, I think the best way, and this isn't going to sound churchy or even particularly religious, but I, I value, um, I value earnestness so much. Like even if it's naive, I value someone who's just earnest in what they're wanting to do, um, because I think with earnestness, you can there's room for growth and room for humility, and um, you know, I, I don't know. I, and I think we've, we've lived in a day and age and maybe we're coming out of it where we used to just tread all over people that demonstrated earnestness. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's too naive. Mm-hmm. You know, it's mm-hmm. too pie in the sky. And, but I tell you what, I, I would rather, I'd rather be earnest than, than, um, I don't know the alternative. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think that's another um, place where we don't see that a lot. So there are just some things that I think are, are, are lacking from mm-hmm. a lot of places so that when you see them, yeah. it's like, oh, that's something that's real. Yeah. Right. Even yeah, if, yeah. even if whatever that is, is not right. 
if it's not, you know, the the long, you know, stand the test of time, all of those things. But when you see it, mm-hmm. this person, the situation, this institution, whatever, yeah. um, they're being real. They're yeah. being authentic. And I think that we 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 thirst for that because I mm-hmm. think it's lacking in so many places. Yeah, and it, I think it gets really complicated as it, as it scales up. Yep. Right? It's oh, on, absolutely. On, one, on one level to be individually earnest. How do yep. we be organizationally earnest? Yep. Um, you know, because I don't know, as you get more power, as you get more influence, that kind of, it kind of seems to be the antithesis of earnestness. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, I, I think we have the good fortune of not having a lot of power right now. <laughs> so we can, <laughs> we can just, true. we can just focus on being earnest. Yeah. yeah. So you, in the sermon, um, spent a, a good amount of time talking um, about where, yeah, right? The word yeah. where. So I was hoping that maybe you could connect some more dots for that, for, with that for us. Yeah. Um, I, you know, it's interesting, the process of creating a sermon. This is a sermon where I read it and I went, well, hmm. crap, <laughs> you know, because this is a, there's not a lot of theological richness by comparison of mm-hmm. other parts of the epistles. I mean, it's a, it's first four verses is just, hello, you know, how are you Mm -hmm. doing? Mm -hmm. Thankful for you. Um, and so there was a, there was a degree of wrestling with this. So I had a sort of idea, scrapped it, idea, scrapped Mm -hmm. it. And then, um, in thinking back, honestly, as I was thinking of writing the portion of the sermon that connects to the previous one, it sort of unlocked it for Mm -hmm. me because last week really was talking about what we are, who Mm -hmm. we are, um, in, in physical, metaphysical, metaphysical sense. Um, and so I, I was struck by particularly the line of thought to understand uh, where, uh, and one could even, I think you could even say when we are. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was struck by just the the phrase of a commentary talking about when we understand that we are a small part written into the story, it changes our orientation to what we think we should be doing. It, it minimizes that individualistic understanding of faith that thinks I should just change my attitude. And what it does, it reminds us that what we do now has stakes, that we can make a difference. And on one hand, that can be imit- uh, intimidating because you think, oh, my gosh, there's all this, this giant movement that's moving. You know, it could be very easy to be intimidated by that. But the other reality is you also realize how small you are in that and mm-hmm. think, I could just fumble this in every single way. And yet God will still reign supreme. And um, I think that's that's an interesting perspective. And that's kind of where it unlocked me, unlocked it for me to understand that Paul is helping them understand, hey, Corinth, it's not just about you. Hey, person that's bragging about your gifts, it's not just about you. You're in a larger story. So that on one hand should change the way you think you should act. But on the other hand, it should maybe give us a little more patience with one another and ourselves. I, and I don't know. It Honestly, that came to me really late. I think I was probably three-fourths of the way through what I thought was going to be the sermon mm-hmm. before that came to me. And it, it just, it seemed to be a better way for me to grasp at what I think Paul was getting at. Mm-hmm. Um, I, like I said at the beginning, I I thought it was beautiful. Okay. Honestly, <laughs> <laughs> I really did. And I, I think, again, it was those fresh ears. But um, it also was that you included Frederick Beekner. Yeah, that's right. In, that's right. In, yes, in yes. this. And, and I shout out to you. And, this, yes. and I shout out to you in that because I, I knew, I knew I had to say something because I knew you would hear it and think, <laughs> oh my gosh, that's my thing. No, just kidding. <laughs> What's he doing? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like drive. I thought we church. had an agreement. Only I get to quote. From I'm him. the Beekner one. But um, it's a great quote by Beekner. I'm yeah. really focused on grace. Obviously, yeah, yeah. Um, he is just fantastic. Yeah, that's a wonderful quote. I, I it's one of those. He, he's one of those people. I like. For me, 
I feel like I read his quotes and be like, man, it's great. And then somehow I completely forget about it. Mm. Years later, I, I'll come over the quote again. I'll remember it. And then I'll get mad at myself for forgetting it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so the part of it, the here is the world, yes, that part yes, that you yes. included, you know, that hangs on my office wall yeah, that's right, across that's right. the way. And I was yeah, like, yeah. Ah. Yeah. yeah. So I was fangirling about that a little bit for, yeah. for Beekner. So. You know, if you, if you go back and like watch or listen to the sermon, you might, you probably can't tell, but there was a line in that. It just killed me. And when I said it, it's, it, it was so, it's such a small line. Um, but for, I don't know, I can't tell you why, but it just like, I almost cried saying it. <laughs> and it was the line of, uh, the smell of rain is grace. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't understand. But for whatever reason, in that moment, I just thought like it, it welled up in me this enormous yeah. sense of gratitude. Mm-hmm. And I was like, where did that come from? Yeah, that's yeah. what Beekner does. Yeah. He's sneaky like that. <laughs> <laughs> So we had the good pleasure this last week to sit down with Chris Lovingood, who is the director of Nations Ministry Center here in Nashville, and talk to him about what's happening in their ministry. Uh, we have an extended interview with them. We showed some of it at Sunday in worship on Sunday, but here is an extended version of the interview. And trust me, it's something you're going to want to listen to because I feel like I learned a ton from talking to him so much about not only what they do, but about the immigration system and what they see as their pressing needs. Uh, And so hang around uh, and listen to it, and we'll catch you at the end with Deep Dive Recommendations. My name is Chris Lovingood, and I'm the executive director of Nations Ministry Center. It's our belief that we want to partner with refugee families to help them become what we call generationally successful. So our vision is not about immediate needs of families, but it's more about a long-term vision for their overall generational well-being. For us, if we wanted to look at it from a statistical or empirical perspective, that means that both the first generation to arrive and not be born in the United States, that they would be 200% above the federal poverty level, and that their children would also be on to careers that would at least place them in the middle class. The idea is, ultimately for us, it's about helping people lifting themselves out of poverty. Refugees are a little bit different because they come with nothing, so they start at zero. We want that family to be able to succeed as much as they can with whatever capacities that they have. The refugee world is so diverse that that can mean a lot of different things for a lot of different families. An Iraqi family might be someone who was trained as a pharmacist who comes to the United States with a great deal of formal education. Well, their possibilities, even in that first generation, are different than someone who's pre-literate in their own language and has no educational background, what's going to happen in that first generation is going to be a lot different than what's going to happen for the Iraqi family, just an example. So it depends on where they're coming from, how they might see for themselves what success is. Our interventions are responses to two forces of which we have almost no control of either. So one is, what are the needs in the refugee community? And what are the barriers that they're facing that they feel like they need outside assistance. We don't ever want to provide services that a family could overcome that barrier on their own. 
because that's taking away power from them and taking voice away from them. So we want to make sure that what we're doing are things that they perceive as things that they can't overcome on their own, a barrier that they can't overcome on their own. So there's that force at work. And then there's also sort of a subset of that is what the refugee perceives may be different than what reality is. We had a family come in and they their main request was we need green cards. We haven't applied for adjustment of status. We're supposed to do that. We nobody we haven't known anybody who could help us do that. We don't know how to do it. We don't know what's involved. Please help us do that. Person said okay. So then they start talking about how we go about doing that. And we find out that the mom's about to lose her job, the dad's insulin, that's six months out of date, and actually the family's couch serving their homeless. But the perception that they had of their situation was that their priority was getting a green card. But when we encountered them, we said, yeah, that's important, but we may want to address some of these other issues too. So sometimes a, a refugee and a refugee community perception may not be the same as what is a reality kind of in this culture. So there's that set of forces. Then there's a set of forces of what funding is available to do what. We have grants and other sources that sort of dictate what we need to be doing or what fields we can work in or what services, basic services we can provide. And then we have from churches like Hillsborough and other individuals and some foundations that sort of say, here, here are some funds. You do what you need to be doing to respond to these forces over here. So we get to kind of choose. So right now, how we're mixing all that together now is through three main programs. One is... Um, a kind of youth empowerment uh, literacy program for refugee and immigrant children. We have about 110 kids in that program, which is um, four to five day a week after school literacy intervention and social emotional learning supports. So we have a primarily it's a literacy component to try to help the child get to the fifth grade reading level. And then as a part of that program, we're providing additional social emotional learning support so that the child has been through pretty significant uh, trauma and deprivation. And so if they're not able to sit at the table and be present and work on their reading abilities, then they're never going to become a fifth grade level reader, which is all the research says that that's a sign of future success. So we realized pretty quickly when we started working with refugee youth that we have to do something in the social emotional areas. We have three different schools we work with. Then we have the regular after school program. And then we have a six to seven week summer literacy intervention too, where we also work on social emotional skills. That's our biggest program and involves a lot of kids and a lot of stuff going on. We do field trips and we do all kinds of other things to just help the kids feel connected to the community they're living in. We introduce them to American customs. We celebrate their birthdays because many of them come from places where they don't celebrate birthdays, but that's a part of our culture. So we introduce them to that idea of birthday cake and things like that. But the heart of it is helping them become socially and emotionally 
adjusted and then helping bridge that gap between where their education had brought them when they came to the United States and the grade they're put in, which is usually a, a big gap. You know, they may have only had kindergarten level formal education, even in their own language, but then by age, they're supposed to be in fourth grade. So when they get here, they're put in a fourth grade class. So they're just set up to fail because of this gap. So there really has to be an intervention. And fortunately, kids are very resilient with targeted intervention that gap can be eased relatively quickly. On the other end of the life spectrum, we also have an elders program. So we work with primarily Nepali refugee elders. We have about 40 to 50 refugee elders that we serve in some way with case management, classroom experiences, and enrichment events. We partner with the program that Westminster Presbyterian Church runs that basically offers a kind of therapeutic hobby type environment. So the elders go to Westminster once a week and do basket weaving and pottery and painting and and all kinds of weaving and gardening and woodwork and all kinds of things like that. So it's connecting community volunteers, Westminster members, and our elders kind of in this interesting um, matrix of uh, working with your hands on things. Our main other program right now, we're asking refugee leaders what barriers do they feel like they're facing in their life here in America. The one thing they all shared in common were immigration issues. We'd had a small immigration program for about eight years. That's things like applying for their green card, applying for a travel document, a work authorization document, deferred action for childhood arrivals, naturalization citizenship applications, and interview coaching. Then when a person naturalizes under certain conditions, their children can naturalize. And so we help families apply for certificates of citizenship for their children. We'd had about 100 cases a year year in 2018, that went from about 80 to 100 cases a year to 325. So it was a major explosion of refugees, asylees, and other immigrants seeking to make sure they maintain their immigration status. Our board decided to invest some resources, and we had another staff member accredited. At the same time, the immigration policies have become increasingly complicated. They're changing regularly with lots of executive orders or changes in immigration policy and procedures. And so it's taken a lot more time on us. It's been actually a big strain on the agency to respond. But we also realized that lots of people were failing their naturalization interview because the standards sort of suddenly, almost overnight, dramatically increased. We do have naturalization interview coaching classes that go on. Some of our goals... We want to expand. Our youth program is elementary and middle school. We have a small number of high school students that participate in a paid internship program. So we're hoping to kind of flesh that out into a more robust system of mentoring and support for them as they go through high school to prepare for what comes next in their lives. So that's one of the main things we're hoping to expand in the coming two years. And we also are looking to add additional supports to our immigration uh, immigration services will continue. And if things get so bad that people can't apply for benefits, it's going to be really hard to figure out what is going to happen in the future. So I wish I had a crystal ball about immigration. We're also looking to see what can we do in terms of supporting refugees who 
are in complex and difficult circumstances. So we typically respond to those situations like domestic violence or homelessness, which are relatively rare, but we would like to be able to have more capacity to deal with those cases. And right now we have very limited capacity. So in the last uh, two or three years, the main sources of refugees that are being resettled are from the Democratic Republic of Congo, from uh, Burma or Myanmar, from Nepal, and then it's sort of a smattering of other places. There are what are called special immigrant visas from Iraq and Afghanistan, which are a little bit different than regular refugees. So we have a number of Iraqi and Afghani kids in our youth program. There are many different ethnic groups from Myanmar, so we usually don't refer to them as Burmese. We would refer to them by whatever ethnic group they identify with. Uh, So we serve like the Zomi, the Chin, the Karen, the Kachin, and a lot of other groups. The challenges we're facing, the biggest one by far, is the very fluid immigration system. On almost a daily basis, there's some new update. Some judge has put on a stay against some order. The Immigration Service has announced a new something that's going to be considered. So, And the, the real problem with that is twofold. One, it causes rumors in the refugee communities. And rumor is more powerful than anything that comes out of our mouths. So if a refugee typically hears it from a friend, well, it's the truth. That's a big, big challenge that we're just not sure how to even face that one. Then then just figuring out how to manage all these cases that used to be really straightforward and relatively simple and not very time-consuming, but now it all requires a lot more management. Yeah. So that creates a strain like on our capacity. Those are probably the biggest challenges. I have been asked because of the lower number of new arrivals in refugee resettlement or the specter of uh, states or local, local uh, counties being able to tell the State Department that they don't want refugees to be directly resettled in the area. Uh, of course, Governor Lee and... Uh, the Nashville has said it's fine, you know, no problem. But people have asked me, well, what would happen if, you know, how would that affect nations if suddenly there are no more new refugees? And, and my response is, we're, we would be fine for a long time because there are already so many people here that are on this, on some level in their, some place in their journey. So uh, they're needing all kinds of perceived assistance or assistance that we see that they need. And there are a relatively small number of organizations that uh, have the skill or capacity to deal with refugee issues. There are also asylee cases that are being processed. And we work with the work with asylees. You know, part of the justification for lowering the number of refugee new arrivals was the tremendous backlog in asylum claims. And we do, on a weekly basis, you know, work with asylees who are receiving affirmative decisions. We had a guy in yesterday from Somalia that had crossed the Mexican border, uh, made an asylum claim, spent two years in a detention center there, got before the judge, and the judge granted him asylum. And he was in the office yesterday applying for... um, his green card. So two two um, years in a U.S. detention facility. 
Well, yeah, and everybody's situation can be different depending yeah. on how long it takes them to confirm someone's identity. Yeah. If they have no sense. identification yeah, so or yeah. documents or anything, then they can be, you know, and I think it's like almost everything in immigration law. There is enormous discretion given to the agencies that enforce the law. And many people don't know this, but if you read the Immigration and Nationality Act, almost everything is at the discretion of, at the discretion of, at the discretion of. If you challenge something an immigration officer says, if we say, well, that's not fair to ask that question. Well, yeah. it's at our discretion whether or not we ask it. Yeah. So I- immigration law is a, is a really different situation in which it's sort of assumed that you're guilty and you have to prove you're innocent. Well, Niles, the time in our program where we like to give some recommendations for things we think you would really enjoy and dive deep into. Amy, I usually have you go first, but I'm going to go first because mine's really quick. So um, I'm someone that like concentrations in and out with me. It just it's there when it's there, you know, uh, but one of those things that's really helpful me is just sort of setting an environment to help me focus on what I'm wanting to focus on. And uh, about a year ago, I got a hold of this email list and it's called Flow State. It's free for anyone. And what it means is every morning in in terms of work days, you'll get an email from them and it's a link to either on YouTube or Spotify or, or Google Play, different music ser- services. Um, the type of music one would listen to that helps with concentration. So there's most of it is non-lyrical. A lot of it is orchestral or cinematic and feel. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just comes every morning. It's, it's really interesting. It's a way to discover a type of music that's never going to get played on the radio because of its style. And it's really all over the place, electronic, classical, all this stuff. But it's, uh, it's free. Just sign up for it every morning. It emails to you. It's called Flow State. Awesome. So mine has to be. A Frederick Beekner recommendation. Okay, okay. <laughs> I, I have two. Oh, man. Getting greedy today. I know, right? right? Yeah. So um, the first would be listening to your life, daily meditations with Frederick Beekner. We're not too far in the year, I think, to pick this book up. It really is like a daily devotional. Mm-hmm. Um, chooses you know, a little section from all of his books. Um, and so you can kind of walk through that as you go through the year. So that's the first one. The second one is Secrets in the Dark, A Life in Sermons. And this is a collection, actually, of his sermons. And for preachers, I think, mm-hmm. when you read at least some of this, most of it, <laughs> most of it, you're like, why can't I just stand up and preach the sermon oh, that yeah, Frederick yeah, yeah, Buechner yeah. has, yeah. has preached? Because they're beautiful. So yeah. those would be my two recommendations, but all kind of together with it being a Frederick Buechner theme. Yeah. Well, those are great. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us on Deep Dive. Uh, all the notes, the links to all these things we talked about are down in the show notes. Make sure to like us on YouTube or pod, uh, podcast platforms, Spotify. If you listen to us on that, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, one, all those things. Uh, leave us a recommendation. Share us with your friends. But above all things, we just want to thank you for joining us. We'll be back next week. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.